Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we're going to do a Concord Coalition in-house review of recent legislative activity in Congress, and there's been a lot of it. And uh, then we'll look at the confusing state of the economy and a new issue brief by Concord's chief economist, Steve Robinson, titled The Fed Fights Inflation. Will history repeat itself? Steve is going to join me for today's uh, discussion, along with Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman. Both, I would remind you, have many years of Capitol Hill staff experience. Tori, let me begin with you and... uh, the big news on the legislative front, starting with the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, uh, which has now been approved by the Senate and uh, moved on to the House, where it's expected to pass. So let's, you know, you can start wherever you want to. The context is important here. This is kind of the end of the road for a long process that used to be called Build Back Better. And this is where we ended up. How did we get here and what's left? Right. So this is the second half of President Biden's domestic policy agenda. If you remember around this time last year, uh, the House and Senate passed the uh, bipartisan infrastructure uh, spending bill, the, the, the BIF, if you will, that spent a whole bunch of money on on upgrading our nation's roads and bridges and and water uh, infrastructure and broadband deployment and stuff like that. So this is the second half of President Biden's uh, domestic policy agenda. Uh, it's a lot smaller than than the way it started. You know, if the House started with a big, huge, gargantuan bill and when it chugged its way over to the Senate, um, two senators in particular, Senator Manchin from West Virginia and Senator Sinema from Arizona, both Democrats, just basically pulled back the reins and said, we just don't want to spend this much. You know, we're concerned about inflation. We're concerned uh, about some of the aspects, you know, the tax increases in this bill. Uh, we're going to take a longer look at this. So they did. And several, several excruciating months later uh, with with the, the the what started off, as you said, is the Build Back Better Act. Several applications of the defibrillator uh, finally uh, resuscitated past the Senate on its way to the House where they'll approve it on Friday and the president expected to sign. A couple of highlights in the bill. And uh, first, I want to preface by saying that any numbers that I assign to any of these policies uh, are really rough, rough estimates because the final score is not yet available on the legislation. The legislation changed a lot in the in the Senate. Things were added. Things were taken away. Certain uh, uh, provisions were changed. So I'm talking in, in rough ballpark estimates here. But there are a couple of things that'll be interesting to uh, people who listen to the radio. Um, first is, uh, and this is one of the, the headline grabbers, um, is the Medicare prescription drug price reform. For the very first time in history, uh, government will be able to negotiate prices on up to 10 
of the most high expenditure prescription drugs in Medicare. Okay, so the government is finally negotiating directly with big pharma on the price of certain prescription drugs. Now, that the good thing about that is it's going to save money. It's going to slow the rate of growth in Medicare. I know there's a lot of concern, a lot of froth and misinformation out there about this is going to cut benefits for Medicare beneficiaries. That's not what this does. Okay, this saves them. It saves the Medicare program money because it won't be spending as much on the same prescription drugs that people get today. Okay. So there's this will this won't affect Medicare beneficiaries at all, except for perhaps to make their prescription drugs less expensive. Um, now the bad news is that this program doesn't start until 2026. Um, the, the, the federal government, HHS in particular, is going to take some time to figure out how to how to structure this program and write the regulations. So if they're looking for, for benefits right away, it's not going to happen. So that's big, big uh, one of the big developments. The second big development is the record uh, investments in clean energy and clean energy tax credits. There's basically this big, huge effort in this legislation. This is actually one of the components of the bill that actually survived from the original House passed version, virtually unscathed, it unchanged. Um, so everybody was talking about how Senator Manchin was anti-climate, anti-climate you know, anti crisis, didn't wanna do anything to help up the climate crisis. That just put this all to rest because he basically endorsed what was in the original House version. And this it spends about $370 billion on clean energy investments, things that encourage the deployment of climate-friendly technologies, clean energy manufacturing and generation, clean fuels, clean cars, uh, enhanced carbon sequestration credits, money to help uh, uh, everything become more energy efficient, money to spend on conservation. So just a record, record investment in, in clean energy and a, a really substantial down payment on combating the climate crisis. So those are sort of the two big things. There are a couple of smaller things that I wanted to mention that'll be interesting to people. Uh, number one, um, it extends for three years. Uh, the expanded uh, premium tax credits that are available under the Affordable Care Act. So if you get your uh, health insurance through the exchange, the health exchange in your state, um, and you receive premium tax credits uh, from the federal government, that, that, that help you get, the, that financial help that you get in purchasing uh, uh, those, those uh, health insurance policies, um, that help is extended for another three years. The other thing that's interesting is that this reconciliation bill is actually paid for in shock of all shocks. You know, we've seen reconciliation so many times in the past um, that has been used to increase the deficit rather than reduce the deficit. This bill actually reduces the deficit because it includes a whole bunch of pay for um, The top line is there is now a new 15% alternative minimum tax on large corporations that'll take effect in January of next year. That's gonna raise somewhere in the ballpark of $300 billion over 10 years. Um, there's also a 1% excise tax on stock buybacks uh, by publicly traded corporations. That goes into effect next year. Um, and then they, the uh, Democrats also decided to invest 
in the IRS. Um, if you've been paying attention at all, um, under the Republican control of the House and Senate and the White House, they've really decimated the IRS and its ability to enforce our current tax laws. Um, and so Democrats have, have made a, a down payment in trying to uh, rewrite that ship. Um, and they're going to spend about $80 billion over the next 10 years uh, trying to get the IRS back to where it was before we just started gutting the IRS. Um, and in doing so, it's going to help the IRS collect the revenue that is owed to the federal government under current law. And that's expected. They're going to spend about $80 billion, but expo it's expected to generate about $200 billion in revenues over 10 years. So it's about a net saver of about $120 billion. So and, and one way to look at this, too, is, hey, if you had to wait a really long time to get your refund, your income tax refund from the IRS, this investment is going to help you get your money back quicker because they're going to have more agents available to process and more processors to process these returns faster and get your money back to you. So uh, overall, um, we're expecting, again, we, we don't know the, the final tally on all these different provisions, but we're expecting this bill to save anywhere between 250 and 300 billion dollars over the 10 year budget window. Now, that's not, you know, a, a game changer when you're 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 23, you know, trillion dollars in in debt. Uh, that's just a rounding error, right? But it's a start and it sets in motion a precedent of paying for the things um, that we ask of our government. And that I think is really really important. Yeah, I think that there are a couple of things that you mentioned are really important for the future. One is the prescription drug benefit thing, because no matter, you know, no matter what you think of, of how it's implemented, controlling healthcare costs, having more efficient healthcare costs is a big deal. And it has to be part mm -hmm. of any long term solution. And uh, climate change is something that really has been ignored uh, in terms of legislative activity. So, you know, one can one can argue with any of these things incentive wise, but getting into those two big areas and doing so in a way that reduces the deficit. And it also faces up to the fact that, as as you pointed out in a blog uh, earlier this year, we're going to need a bigger boat, meaning <laughs> that uh, there are too many spending promises on the table or things that haven't been done that we may want to do and a big enough deficit and debt that it uh, in one form or another, we're going to need more revenue. So it, it does tackle that one concern that uh, I have uh, we raised in the press release mm -hmm. uh, uh, over the weekend was uh, just the it's got kind of a lumpy deficit deficit reduction path and that the deficit yes. actually goes up. Uh, there's a, there's a, it, it goes down the first year and then it goes up. Uh, you know, for a few years until I don't think it's 2027 or 2028 when mm -hmm. uh, some of these savings begin to kick in. So I'm a little bit suspicious of that uh, backloaded savings. Right. Yeah. It, that's always a disappointment, right? When the savings are backloaded. Um, and I, I will say, you know, I'm a little nervous about this 15% alternative minimum book tax on large corporations. Um, you know, already when the when the bill, the legislation was on the floor of the Senate, they've already they already started to change it. They're like, wait a minute, this 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 captures you know this element. Oh, it captures this element. You know, and, for, and they already carved out you know certain manufacturing because they they decided they figured out that 
oh my gosh, these manufacturers that rely on accelerated depreciation, you know, suddenly they can't take those, those, te- those, uh, you know, they can't take those credits on their, on their tax reforms. And, uh, uh, so there was already an effort to sort of carve out, you know, that aspect of the of the alternative minimum tax. And I'm kind of concerned that this 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 new book tax is going to be so complicated that over time it's either going to be delayed or watered down so much that it eventually is just repealed because it's useless. And, and so where the, did all those savings go? The the, the precedent that uh, we are all concerned about on that is the so-called Cadillac tax, right? which was a big part of the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare. When that right. was passed, it was supposed to be a big offset, a big revenue raiser. And you know, briefly, it was a tax on plans that were deemed to be excessively generous. That you know, It was supposed to do two things, raise revenue and also encourage more efficient use of health care. So right. it was encouraging employers to have less generous plans, you might say, or not, not encourage just spending on uh, health care without uh, taking into consideration the cost benefit analysis, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, it was very unpopular, particularly with unions that uh, right. felt they had negotiated generous plans for a reason right. as giving up compensation in, mm-hmm. in its place. The, the uh, implementation of the uh, tax was delayed and in the in the original bill, and then it just kept getting delayed. And eventually right. Congress decided, well, we really don't want to have this happen anyway. And they canceled it. Right. So for a lot of us, we kind of felt taken to the cleaners on that, that that thought, well, the Obamacare was going to be paid for by this Cadillac tax. Uh, it never happened. So I guess there's a little bit of concern uh, that this is deja vu on that. So, Steve, um, to bring you into the conversation here, this is this is called the Inflation Reduction Act. So regardless of what it might do for the climate and drug prices and corporate taxes and the deficit, uh, how do you think it would live up to its name of inflation reduction? Well, that, that's a nice White House talking point, but I don't believe you can find very many economists who will put any stock in it. You know, back back when they were increasing the deficit by a trillion dollars, they didn't say that it was the Inflation Increasing Act. (laughs) Now they claim they're reducing the deficit. Suddenly they're, you know, reducing inflation. And, you know, the connection between deficits and inflation is pretty tenuous to begin with. And as you guys were just discussing, you know, the, the deficit reduction effect of this bill is 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 minimal and volatile. I mean, you, you kind of reduce the deficit and then you don't reduce the deficit. And of course, all the savings that we're counting on to reduce the deficit are in the out years. And some of the policies in the bill are sunsetted. And, you know, as Congresses want to do, you know, they give the spending up front and then they pretend to pay for it on the back end. Uh, and the way they pay for it is to put in a provision uh, that, that sunsets. In other words, for example, Tori mentioned the, the Affordable Care Act subsidies. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- those sunset. So the question becomes, what happens if you want to extend all the temporary provisions and your revenue raisers don't work out as planned? You know, there's a big, huge revenue assumed from IRS enforcement. You know, everyone wants to see the IRS enforce the tax law. People ought to pay the taxes that they owe. The question is how... You know, how much, what's the return on investment? Will, in fact, the IRS get the money that, that they're expected to, to, to collect? And, you know, that, that's anybody's guess as to how effective this is going to be. So, you know, it could very well turn out that the revenue raisers don't raise as much revenue as expected. 
And if you end up permanently extending some of the temporary provisions, you know, there goes your deficit reduction. Right. So while, you know, while it, it looks like good news on the front end, if you're worried about the deficit, you know, anybody who's been around this town as long as Tori and I, and, and you, Bob, too, as well. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> uh, I'm just speaking of our experience and wisdom here. Um, but, 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 you know, the point is, it's like Charlie Brown and, and Lucy in the football. You know, we've seen this story before and it doesn't always work out. So yeah. we'll see. I, I think Steve makes a very good point. You've got permanent mm-hmm. revenue increases in here, but only temporary spending provisions. So you've sort of got an apples to oranges comparison. And, and I think people need to be aware of that. Well, and even if it uh, all that stuff works out, it just doesn't seem to. There's not a whole lot Congress can do on inflation. The Fed is working on it. I mean, Congress could, I suppose, make it worse or they could engage in some policies that would certainly help. I guess the argument is that this bill doesn't fight the Fed uh, initially anyway. It, uh, you know, the first year is, is a deficit reduction year, assuming that the big tax uh, is allowed to kick in, because I think a lot of the savings in the first year come from that corporate uh, tax increase that Tory was talking about. But uh, the Congressional Budget Office and, and other estimates I've seen are, and just comments from other economists around the spectrum is, is pretty much this is really doesn't affect inflation, despite the name of the, uh, the act. The irony is there's a lot of good stuff in the, in the bill. It's not stuff that has much to do with the name of the bill, <laughs> Inflation mm-hmm. Reduction Act. So. Anyway, I guess uh, so. Legislatively, now it's uh, Tori. It, it moves on. You, I think you mentioned uh, to the House. No problems expected there. Last minute tweaks. This bill started in the House. The Senate changed it, so now it's got to go back to the House, where the House has to approve the Senate's changes, right? Because both chambers have to pass identical legislation before it can get sent to the president. The House is coming back into session. They've been on vacation for a week. So all they're calling all their members back to vote this Friday on the legislation. Um, there was some concern whether the the sort of the New Jersey, Connecticut, New York Democrats, House Democrats would support this legislation because there wasn't any tax provision in here that um gave some relief on the deduction for state and local income taxes. That cadre of lawmakers have said, we're going to support this legislation. So I don't expect, uh, I don't expect any problems. Matter of fact, I don't expect any defections at all um, from Democrats in the house, well, it's, it's, but I also uh, don't per- expect any House Republicans to support the bill either. So no, well, it's uh, pretty amazing. You mentioned that state and local uh, cap uh, that, that almost, caused a, uh, a ruckus in the Senate because there was a lot of last minute uh, deal making with uh, Senator Sinema at the end. Uh, and uh, you were you were admiring the work, quick work of the Senate Finance <laughs> Committee staff and saving the whole thing. <laughs> there was some excellent, excellent staff work on this bill. I mean, the weird thing about reconciliation is that the, the last step in reconciliation is this thing called Votorama, where there are all these rapid fire amendments where members really don't have a lot of time to investigate the legislation and before them, they're just reliant on what their staff tells them and what they can read in a summary of the amendment and the, you know, the two minutes of debate that they get before they have to vote. And there was an amendment offered by Senator Thune that Senator Sinema thought was really grand and groovy. 
Um, and it had an offset in it that would have given, you know, this this cadre of, of House Democrats from Connecticut, New York and New Jersey uh, some some really big heartburn. It could have actually killed the bill in the House. Uh, so some quick thinking by Senator Wyden's uh, Finance Committee staff. Uh, they had an alternative offset in their back pocket, which Senator Warner offered on a subsequent amendment, and that was adopted as well. So boom, whew, rescue last minute. High drama in the last hour and a half of a reconciliation bill. But you know, that's 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 one thing you 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 you, you got to be prepared for anything when you're going into reconciliation. You got to be prepared for for drama and surprises and you got to be able to move fast. And congratulations to to Senator Wyden's staff. I mean, they they were ready and they had, you know, offsets in their back pocket just in case uh, they needed one. And they did. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson are joining me for a discussion of recent congressional activity and economic developments. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and uh, Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson and I are discussing recent congressional activities and economic developments. Well, we were talking in the last segment about the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, that isn't the only thing that uh, Congress has been working on. As a matter of fact, uh, two other bills with substantial policy and budgetary consequences have been on the agenda. One is called the CHIPS Act, and another is called the PACT Act. Mm -hmm. uh, CHIPS is, is aimed at uh, rebuilding and incentivizing the uh, microchip industry in the United States to make it more competitive uh, for the modern world. And the other is aimed at veterans' health uh, to really change the way that uh, veterans, when they have to establish a claim for these burning pit, they get cancer, there's, uh, they, they no longer would have to, there would be a presumption that it ca was caused by their military service. Uh, both are, uh, you know, have big consequences, both budgetarily and, uh, and in, in policy-wise. And actually, both passed with surprising bipartisan support. I mean, the, the, the Inflation Reduction Act was pure party right. line, but these two actually had a lot of bipartisan support. So we're not going to go into a great detail with them, but Thought we should mention them. Tori, uh, some highlights. Uh, take it from where you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, first, I'd like to point out that, you know, the party line vote, the party line bill in in Congress uh, was offset and actually is projected to reduce the deficit. But when something happens to be bipartisan, suddenly fiscal responsibility goes out the door. Um, the CHIPS Act, the main focus of the CHIPS Act is to rehome microchip manufacturing here in the United States. So all the components that are used in making microchips, but also all the equipment that's used in manufacturing microchips, as well as the manufacturing of microchips. One of the things that we realized in COVID is that, oh crap, that stuff is produced almost 100% overseas. We don't have any of that here. And when our supply chains go belly up for whatever reason, global health pandemic, uh, geopolitical strife, whatever it is, and we can't get that stuff here, it creates a, a, a systemic problem. 
so there's been a concerted uh, effort uh, for both national security reasons, but also economic security reasons to rehome all of all aspects of that here in the United States. And that's what the CHIP Act does. And the, the, the top line cost for that was about $280 billion, no offsets. So that's uh, number one. Uh, the PACT Act, a little bit hard to get your arms around the cost of that legislation because there are two different ways to look at the legislation. As you were saying, the Honoring Our PACT Act basically uh, allows veterans who uh, can demonstrate proximity to these burn pits in largely in Iraq and Afghanistan and have developed horrible diseases associated you know, with that type of exposure. There is a presumptive presumptive eligibility for uh, 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 healthcare benefits through the Veterans Affairs so they can get VA healthcare. Part of the problem uh, with this legislation is that it took about $400 billion in current law discretionary spending that's included in the baseline and reclassified it as mandatory spending. So, that's that's basically what it says. You know, discretionary spending is spending that Congress has the discretion, the choice to fund in the future. OK, they can fund it at the level that's in the baseline. They can go above. They can go below, et cetera. And they took that spending and they redesignated it as mandatory spending, which basically says Congress will spend this amount of money and they have no choice. So. The amount of new spending above baseline in this bill is about $280 billion. But when you look at the $400 billion that they reclassified as discre- from discretionary to mandatory, okay, from something that, yeah, you can fund to, yeah, you must fund, the cost of the bill expands to $680 billion. So whether this bill costs $280 billion or $680 billion, I guess it depends on where you sit. The the CBO, you know, noted that with the PACT Act, um, there are a lot of uncertainties uh, because you're you're having to anticipate how many people would qualify, the extent of the health care that would need to be provided, the extent of uptake from uh, veterans. Um, so there are there are a lot of uh, uncertainties about that bill. Uh, in the scoring of it. But the uh, yeah, the bottom line is, uh, and I think it is interesting that you note that uh, bipartisanship doesn't uh, equate necessarily with pay for (laughs) quite uh, quite the opposite. Well, Steve, we've got some interesting economic developments that uh, are part of the mix and the Fed is trying to react to them. Uh, You wrote an issue brief this week kind of looking at uh, at the Fed's dilemma here. Um, and sometimes people look back to the 1970s and 80s, the last time we had high inflation and said, are there any lessons to be learned here? Uh, what briefly did you uh, find? You know, pe- people have been making the comparison that inflation is at a 40-year high. So we haven't seen, you know, in the last inflation numbers um, are basically comparable to what we saw in the, in the late 1980s. And so, you know, my intuition was to say, well, let's go back and look at what was going on in the 1980s and see whether there's anything we can learn and what that might tell us about what's going to happen from from today going forward. And, you know, it's obviously a a bit of a gamble to say that, you know, history will repeat itself. Uh, But if you start with the assumption that, you know, it might repeat itself and what would that look like? 
uh, I, you know, took took the data from the the inflationary period, which basically starting in the mid seventies, the late seventies, and then the early eighties, we saw several sort of spikes and troughs of inflation, where inflation would go up and it would go down and it would go back up. And so throughout that period, the Federal Reserve was trying to uh, contain inflation. And several times it made that uh, made those efforts and then it would back off. It would raise interest rates and then inflation would come down, but then inflation would go back up. And so the Fed would have to raise interest rates again. So they went through several cycles of raising and lowering interest rates. And we're seeing some commentary in the press today um, where financial markets are saying, yeah, you know, the Fed's got to fight inflation, but we expect them to be, you know, they're going to get it contained by the end of the year. And we think interest rates will go back down by next year. Uh, and so, you know, if you follow the historical pattern where the Fed, you know, would raise rates and then lower rates. And, you know, if we were to do that again, um, the question is, will we produce the same results uh, as we saw last time, where essentially the, the Fed got behind the curve and they tried lowering rates and they realized that inflation, in fact, was not contained and they had to start all over and raise rates again. And so they went through that cycle several times. And so the question will be, you know, whether we're going to see that kind of pattern going forward. We've got, uh, I mean, it, 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 it seems like uh, based on your modeling that, uh, that the hard landing is going to be hard to stick. I mean, it, uh, I mean, the soft landing is going to be hard to stick because unemployment would have to go up to um, an extent that people just aren't, anticipating right now. Yeah, I mean, that's the dilemma. I mean, what, what the historical data show is that what really drives inflation down is either an increase in long-term interest rates or an increase in unemployment. And right now, the Fed is saying, well, we're only going to raise you know, the Fed funds rate to about 3.8%, and we think unemployment is only going to be 3.9%. And so if you, if you sort of plug those two uh, Fed estimates or projections, into the historical data and you know, sort of trying to say, okay, how does this fit with, with this history? You see that, that the Fed is not, does not even get close to, to, to its 2% inflation target. So either they're gonna to have to raise interest rates much higher or unemployment rates are gonna to have to be much higher in order to see inflation get down to the 2% target that they've set for themselves. So you know, the, the question remains, which, which of those is gonna give? I mean, the, the, the job numbers came out last Friday at a half a million new jobs. And so, you know, the, the, the economy appears to be chugging along, the, the you know, the, the labor markets are, are continuing to be tight. You know, that doesn't indicate a recession. And so to, to get the unemployment rate up to fight inflation, interest rates are going to have to go up. And historically, they're going to have to go up much more than what the Fed currently is, is projecting they're going to, at this point, they're committed to or what they think they're going to commit to. So, yeah, that's kind of the good news and the bad news is the good news, the jobs number is fantastic and much, much more than people were expecting. And then, the, the, but the, then you turn around and say, Ooh, well, I guess the, uh, maybe the Fed is going to have to stamp, uh, you know, on that, on the break, even, even harder and faster. And so uh, the timing of what well, we clearly don't seem to be in a recession. Now, the question is, you know, does oddly enough, does the uh, strong job growth portend some sort of, um, uh, you know, recessions some, somewhere off in the future because things are running too hot. I mean, I think that, 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 that the message is that as long as the unemployment rate is as low as it is, you're not going to contain inflation and interest rates are going to have to go higher 
And at that point, you know, when interest rates get high enough, inflation is going to start coming down. But the trade-off there is with higher interest rates, unemployment is also going to go up. Well, the odd thing, too, is that wages, uh, people are saying wages are growing too fast. Now, everybody likes growing wages, but there's well, some uh, concern. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, wages are going up, but they're not going up as fast as inflation. No, they're not going up as fast as inflation. Yeah, so so wor- workers are losing purchasing power because prices are rising faster than wages. But higher wages feed into inflation because, you know, wages, the, the cost of labor is a, is a major component of all the costs of goods and services. And so when wages rise, uh, that also tends to push up prices. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a circular uh, problem and uh, there's no easy solution. Well, we are going to uh, look at the new inflation numbers uh, in our next segment, which is coming right up. Uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I've been discussing recent congressional activity and economic developments with Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'm joined by Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson and Policy Director Tori Gorman. We've been discussing recent congressional activities along with economic developments. And in the last segment, we were talking a bit about the Fed's dilemma trying to uh, increase, uh, decrease inflation, rather, without causing a recession. And we did get new inflation numbers this week, just out on uh, Wednesday morning. Uh, Steve, how does that play into uh, what we've been talking about here? Some some people are saying this is maybe we've hit the peak with inflation. (laughs) Well, you know, we went from transitory to peak watch, you know, I mean, it's, it's an interesting sort of dynamic. But yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the inflation number is down from last month, we were, you know, back in June, it was 9.1. Uh, the, 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 the numbers for, for July were at 8.5. So, you know, clearly, that's good news, it, it went down rather than up. But, you know, 8.5 is still really, really high inflation. So, you know, I'm not quite sure how much there is to cheer about. You know, the speculation as well, you know, maybe inflation has peaked and uh, the Fed can can take its foot off of uh, of, of the break. And, you know, the, the Fed's been raising interest rates. Uh, you know, they raised it three quarters of a percentage point the last time. And there was speculation that they'll have to, to do a similar increase the next time. And now people are saying, oh, well, inflation's come down. So maybe the Fed will have to, you know, maybe the Fed can back off and we'll only see a half a point increase the next time. Um, but then, you know, th- these numbers are really fluid and it's, it's hard to, to, you know, def- decide that they're in fact, you know, we, we really have peaked inflation and it'll continue to come down. It very well could, but it's too early to tell. Troy, uh, a lot of times economists focus on what they call core CPI, mm-hmm. meaning uh, excluding certain volatile Food and energy, mm-hmm. food, food and energy, uh, which which tend to fluctuate. So, what's what's been the trend on core inflation? 
Uh, so for the last one, two, three, four, five, uh, five months, we've seen a downward trend. You know, in March, we were looking at 6.5% core inflation rate. We're down to about 5.9. But the last three months, we've sort of seen a stall out in the reduction in core inflation, you know, 6.0, 5.9, 5.9. We're sort of holding at that, that 5.9, 6% core inflation level. Um, you know, and again, that's excluding the, the volatile uh, food and energy sectors. Um, so I, I, you know, I, as Steve was saying, you know, fine, we, we, things, you know, at least inflation didn't go up this month, but we're still at a very high level of inflation, even in the, the, the non-volatile sector, you know, the core energy sector or the core uh, CPI uh, sector. So, you know, the Fed's got a lot of, a lot of work in front of them. Yeah. I mean, gas prices have been coming down and that might be Reflected, but you were saying, Steve, that gas prices aren't that big a part of the um, overall inflation report. Yeah. So just as a short background, you know, the, the CPI is based on prices, but you have to figure out how much weight to give each price. In other words, how many eggs do people buy? How much gas do people buy? And so the CPI, uh, what, what is called the market basket of goods, is a function of two things. One is, you know, what are individual prices? And then this two is how much people buy of each good. And, you know, gasoline prices are very visible and people, you know, you drive up and down the road and you see the gas prices up on the sign, but, you know, gas prices aren't that big a share of, of the market basket. I mean, the, the biggest share of the market basket is housing, both, you know, rental and, and residential housing. It's, it's almost a 30% of the basket. And, you know, one of the things that I pointed out in my, in my paper we talked about earlier is the housing component you know, back in 1983, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics changed the way we define housing in terms of the CPI. They used to measure the price of houses, which they would go out and survey and look at data of what people were paying when they bought a new house. And they decided that that was perhaps misleading because, you know, housing are to a certain extent an investment, you know, just like if people buy stocks, people buy a house, the price of the house goes up, the price of the stock goes up. You know, to, to some extent, that offsets you because when you sell it, that's a benefit to you. So it's sort of like an investment. And so BLS said, well, you know, we really should separate out the investment portion from the consumption portion. And so they came up with what was called owner's equivalent rent. And essentially what that says is we're going to look at the value of living in your house. In other words, if, if you were renting your house rather than buying it, how much would you pay, be paying in rent? And so what the CPI does now since, since 1983 is they look at what is the change in the rental value of your house? Now, interestingly, you know, obviously the rents go up in, in, in the environment that we've been seeing in the last few years, home prices have been rising dramatically, but the rental equivalent of living in the housing has gone up much slower. The problem, however, is that there's this connection between the data. If you look at the price of housing and, and how much it goes up, if you look about 16 months later, 12 to 16 months later, you also see a significant increase in the rental value. So the prices show up with a lag in the rental values. Now, the, the, the price data is, is not published every month, so we don't have data for, for recent months. But back in the first quarter of this year, uh, the price of new housing uh, was almost up 20%. Now, if you've put that as a lag and say, well, if that 20% increase in housing shows up in rent 12 months later, you know, given the weight of housing, that 20% increase is going to add about four, uh, four tenths of a percent 
to the CPI. So yeah, CPI went down this month, but if you build the lag structure of the higher home prices showing up in rental prices with a lag, then you know the rental value or the rental price index is going to be going up as well. Uh, but it, but it will take a while for that to filter through. And the question is how is how you know how does that play out across the economy? I mean, you know, fuel prices show up immediately when you put gas in your car, but fuel prices also show up when you buy the things that the truckers and you know all of the goods and services that get transported across the across the uh, the country. You know, high gas prices today will show up in prices of goods and services with a lag. And knowing those lag structures, you know, it makes it very difficult <laughs> to, to predict just how changes in prices in one month are going to show up later as being higher or lower uh, because of the lags it takes for the prices. Same thing with wages. When wages go up, that doesn't show up immediately in the CPI. But if wages go up, wages go into the price of goods, and then that shows up as higher prices later. Just because we're coming down a little bit now, you think that the because of the housing component that uh, it could, it's going to be difficult to bring it down longer term. It might actually start coming up again. Yeah, it wouldn't necessarily come up again, but it would prevent it from going down as much as you might otherwise expect. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, as I say, I think we're also seeing a lull in gasoline prices. Um, you know, with the summer months and the high gasoline prices and inflation, I think a lot of people have been reluctant to travel, summer vacations, people are doing staycations. You know, in September when school starts again and everybody's, you know, back to school, back to work. And then, of course, you know, we, we learned from, from COVID that, that gas prices are set internationally. The market for gas is an international one. And as the winter comes and, and you know, Russia decides not to provide natural gas to, to, to Europe and, you know, we have an energy crisis. Uh, so, I mean, I, I, it's, it's possible that this may just be a temporary lull in inflation. Well, it's, it, it, that gets gets back to the Fed. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and that that really is the Fed's dilemma. I mean, again, as I pointed out in my paper, um, if you look historically, real interest rates, meaning the the interest rate minus the inflation rate, historically, that's been in the range of two percent. Right now, we have negative six percent interest rates, or close to that. So, you know, unless the financial markets have so fundamentally changed, you know, since we've been collecting data and tracking this stuff for the last, you know, half century, um, for interest rates to normalize in terms of restoring a 2% rate, either interest rates are going to have to come way, way up or inflation is going to have to come way, way down because right now we're so far from that, you know, historical average. So, you know, the question becomes, which happens first? Do the feds really have to push interest rates up to 4 or 5% to get inflation back down to 3%? Um, or do they keep interest rates low and inflation stays high? And, you know, they, they're not going to accomplish, you know, what, what they hopefully intend to accomplish, which is to get inflation back to their target uh, of 2%. And, you know, just history suggests they still have a long way to go in raising interest rates. And right now, the markets don't see it. I mean, the market's priced in the ten-year bond right now is, is about two point seven, so you know that's down from a high a few months ago of over over three percent. So the markets are still thinking the Fed's got this under control, inflation's coming down. Either that's what they're thinking, or alternatively, they're thinking we're happy to live with negative interest rates forever. 
And I just, you know, that would be that, so. That doesn't seem that doesn't <laughs> seem like a uh, a logical <laughs> conclusion from markets. Uh, yeah, and, and, but you juxtapose that about the uh, the roaring jobs market, uh, and you know, I mean, you get these contrary signals where you know the last thing we heard from the jobs report was is just stunningly high and half a million jobs and way more than anybody thought and people saying whoa the fed is really going to have to clamp down here and then the, the next inflation report is is down obviously is for reasons you've all been saying it's not uh like a problem cured or anything like that it's just going down so that would indicate well maybe the fed's uh raising interest rates is beginning to have some sort of an effect it's going to be difficult for the Fed in September, I guess, to interpret this data and decide whether they, you know, how hard they want to clamp down in their next uh, rate adjustment or, uh, you know, what do you think? Yeah, no, I mean, again, it, it depends on what the Fed's going to look at. I mean, historically, the long term rates have to get up above the inflation rate. And the unemployment rate is going to have to rise. Otherwise, inflation is not going to come down. The Fed needs to get inflation down. And historically, that only happens when long-term interest rates go up and the unemployment rate goes up. And you know, again, we're, we may be in a new world, a new paradigm, as they say, and the, the markets simply operate differently than they have for the past half century. But you know, if, if that's not the case... The Fed still has a long way to go, and the economy still has a rough road ahead. Well, that's all the time we have uh, for this week. We'll continue to monitor events. Uh, this is uh, Bob Bixby. I'm your host for Facing the Future. Thank you to Steve Robinson and Tori Gorman for helping explain all the ups and downs of the economy and the recent legislative activity in Congress. Please join us again next week for another edition of Facing the Future. 